I'm going to read in the book of John, if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 17. I was sharing this morning that um, God is, many years ago, there was a book came out, The Prayer of Jabez. Do any of you remember that? It became a multi, multi-million selling 15 million, 17 million copies. Just, it just took the Christian world by storm because people wanted to experience the prayer of Jabez, expand my borders. You know, we want more stuff. <laughs> we, ex- we want God to expand our borders to make room for more of our stuff. But the Lord put on my heart this week as the sermon title he gave to me, what about the prayer of Jesus? How many copies would that sell? You know, the prayer of Jesus is not like the prayer of Jabez. The prayer of Jesus It's a prayer of personal transformation. It is a prayer that we have to determine to answer. It's not a prayer that Jesus could answer. He prayed that prayer, but he can't answer it. His Father cannot answer it. The Holy Spirit cannot answer it. It can only be answered by us. I call it the unfinished prayer. And I want to share that with you this morning. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved them, as you have loved me. What a prayer. What a prayer. I don't pray for these alone, but I pray for all of those that are going to believe on me through their word. We are living in a most trying hour. And I know that many of you have been praying for your children just by the show of hands. How many of you have ever prayed for a a relative or your children? Have you ever asked yourself the question, what is taking them so, I've been praying for them for 40, 30, 20. You go through that, I've been praying. If they only knew how long I've been praying for them. Well, you know, I I, I took Ellen White's advice because she says, if you're going to pray for somebody, tell them you're praying for them. So they could order their lives in harmony with your prayer. If you're going to pick somebody up, call them and say, I'm going to pick you up. If you want them to come over to dinner, call them and say, I want you to come over to dinner. Why do we not call people and say, we're praying for them? She says, only then will they begin to work in harmony with your prayer. They'll begin to order their lives in harmony with that prayer. And I believe that it's because we don't tell people enough that we're praying for them that sometimes they are clueless. Sometimes, you know, they say, thank you for praying for me. 
But sometimes we should say, I prayed for the Lord to break that habit in your life. I prayed for the Lord to deliver you from that thing, whatever it is. I prayed for God to be with you in that trial. I prayed for, and the list goes on and on. When we tell people that we prayed for them, I believe they can say, thank you for the prayer. Now I'm going to order my life in harmony with that prayer. Because God never forces us to do anything. But he prayed for us in so many ways. In one of those prayers, we remember when he prayed for Peter, he said, Peter, the devil desires to sift you as wheat. But this time, he told Peter, he's praying. he said, but I prayed for you, that when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. That's one of the first times we find Jesus saying to somebody, but I prayed for you, that when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. And I know that Peter probably said, but why didn't you say to the devil, no, don't sift me? Because sometimes you have to be sifted. Sometimes you've got to go through some difficulty for God to get you out of the way. Sometimes God has to bring you through your fiery furnace, your lion's den. Sometimes God has to bring you face to face with the thing you fear the most, you. Because you know what? The devil can't take your salvation. You're the only one that can defeat the plan of God in your life. But shortly before the prayer, shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed that prayer that I just shared with you. And I want you to pay particular attention this morning because this is what the Lord brought to my mind. If, let me give rid of that word and put a question. Do you believe that the devil works hard for your prayers for your loved ones not to be answered? He will use friends and acquaintances. He will use situations to try his best so that the prayer you are praying tonight, tomorrow night, the next month, the last year, the year before that, 10 years ago, he will work as hard as he can for your prayer not to be answered. Now, in that context, do you believe that the devil is working even harder for the prayer of Jesus not to be answered? Of course. Because shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, the prayer of his heart. He says, I'm about to leave. I'm going to leave this world in the care of a motley crew. Well, people that don't even have a clue about what it means to be unified. And that's what the day of Pentecost was all about. They got together in the upper room and they prayed. They prayed to lay aside their differences. They drained themselves of themselves so that Christ can fill them. Any speck of you that is still in you means that that's that much less room for Christ to fill. So they got together and prayed. And in the context of the story, here's the, here's the, here's the context of why Jesus prayed. In John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Every one of us has an hour that we're going to face. Am I right? And, 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 um, and don't let the devil put you to sleep right now, because I, I have a water gun. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I'm going to let the Spirit of God wet you up and wake you up. At the hour that came for Jesus, at his most trying hour, 
he prayed the prayer for unity. And in this final contest, in the most trying hour before every one of us, the Lord is praying for that prayer to be accomplished in amongst us. Why? So the world may believe that he sent us. Can the world believe it when we're arguing with one another? Will the world ever say those are Christ's representatives? If you watched Wednesday night, I'm mean, sorry, Thursday night live, you may remember the wonderful story that Pastor John Bradshaw told about the pastors that were in a restaurant and one of them was just irritated at the waitress. Remember that, Iris? What a, what a wonderful story. He was just irritated at the waitress, kept telling her how much he didn't like this and didn't like that. And when she walked away, his pastor friend says, when she comes back, I dare you to witness to her. I dare you to try to witness to her. And he hung his head. Because there's no way she wants to hear what he has to say. She wouldn't even take a, a glow track from him. She probably wouldn't even accept the tip. Why does the devil work so hard on us? So that there will be no evidence in the world that Jesus really exists. The evidence that Jesus exists is because of us. Of us. What what happens in our lives. And in 1904, when the fledgling Seventh-day Adventist Church was struggling with this very thing of unity, unity, they, have, they had difficulty. I mean, don't think that we're the only ones that have difficulty. The Church of God has always had difficulty because the Church of God is made up of people. And in every age, whether Peter and James and John and Bartholomew, the list goes on and on, whether Ellen White or James White or Joseph Bates or John Loughborough or, or the list goes on and on there. At every stage in every age of the church, people have had to do the same thing, get themselves out of Jesus' way. Get themselves out of the way of him accomplishing the purpose. And I read this, she wrote these letters to the church in 1904. It was a letter, manuscript 112, but listen to what Ellen White told the early church. A most trying time is before us, and until the close of this earth's history, the perils thickening around us will continue to increase. Do you believe that? Do you think that COVID is the last test we're going to get? We ain't seen nothing yet. And if we can't be unified on that, we're not ready for what's coming. She says, and still, notwithstanding the importance of the present hour, Seventh-day Adventist are as the church spoken of in the last part of the third chapter of Revelation, the church of Laodicea. The whole of this chapter is a lesson of warning to us to which we shall do well to take heed for the time is at hand. And listen to what she was talking about, which almost seems to me, I could have written this letter today, Bob, Moses, I could have written this letter today because what she addressed in the church then is the same thing the church is struggling with today. Listen to what she says. She says, the political condition of the world makes it necessary for us to be on guard every moment. I wish somebody would have said amen right there. Nothing new. Under the, sun. Nothing new. the political condition of the world makes it necessary for us to be on guard every moment. Amen. Lest Satan take an advantage of us and we be drawn into some fascinating, deceptive delusion which he has prepared as a snare for our souls. Nothing new. Messed up political world back then. 
messed up political world now. Amen, church. Ain't nothing new. You look to men, it's going to be messed up. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, they're all messed up. No surprise there. She continues, the religious and political world is filled with great unrest. Many things will arise to disrupt the minds of men and to cause them to live in an atmosphere of uncertainty. And that's today. We're living in an atmosphere of uncertainty. What was true in 1904 is true in 2021. The political and religious world is in unrest. But listen to what she says. Warnings come from God to his watchmen. I'm a watchman. Told you that, I told you that not too long ago. I'm not just your pastor anymore. I'm a watchman. What is God saying to me? Telling them of the necessity of keeping a close, earnest, watchful guard. Satan with all his hosts is on the field of battle. He will employ every stratagem possible to obtain advantages over God's people. Let the watchmen of the Lord search the scriptures closely. Let them put all their powers to use in the Lord's service. Let them not think that the present is a time when they can afford to be at ease. For the thief cometh to steal and to destroy. If possible, the sheep of God's pasture. She's saying, watchmen, be awake because the devil's coming to get your sheep. I am instructed to bear to our people the message that Satan is working with all his misappropriated power to overcome them. He works by whispering and surmising, by causing bitterness among believers so that threatened dangers can scarcely be mentioned. Let me, say what, let me tell you what she's saying. Whispering, surmising, and bitterness amongst us makes it difficult for the, for the shepherd, the watchman, to talk about these things because, she says, because some of them will say, in response to these warnings, it's an attempt to do us injury. It's an attempt to thrust injury to our souls. She's in essence saying, when the watchman warns the sheep of what's coming, they'll, they'll say, well, he's just, you know, this is, a, this is a thrust to do injury to our souls. But let those who say this get out of the path of evil, and they will not think that the sword that is cutting against evil is turned against them. The two-edged sword of truth cuts both ways. Amen. I want you to grab this. The, the sword of truth cuts both ways, she says, it cuts right and left. For the word of God must reach the people. The attention of men and women must be aroused. Let those, let those who are continually complaining keep out of the way. And let the sword of the Spirit do its work. Amen. She's saying God's going to cut left and right. But don't let us think that the sword is just to cut doctrinal errors out. The sword is intended to remove doctrinal errors from our minds and evil traits from our character. So God's going to use the word not just to keep the errors of, of doctrinal inaccuracies out of the church, but the lies of character inaccuracies out of our lives. He wants to get us ready to go in. 
That's why Jesus said in John 17, and he broke it down into three categories. I would strongly impress you today, maybe tomorrow morning for your family worship, read John 17. This chapter is powerful. It's replete with some of the most memorable scriptures that we know. One of them, for example, Jesus talked about the earnest revelations of his heart. What was the earnest revelation of his heart? John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, speaking to his Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He is saying, until we know God, until we know his Son, we don't really have eternal life. And what does it mean to know somebody? It means that you know what they like and what they don't like. And so in this crisis, our connection to God is being revealed as genuine or a hoax. But the greatest hoax is testifying that we know God, but we're denying him by the way we live. That's a hoax. You don't need to go on the internet to find a hoax. Look at yourself. Look in your mirror. I'm a child of God, but I don't like this, and like that, like that person, like this person. I don't, I can't stand that. That's a hoax. Forget about what's on the internet. Look in your own mirror. When we don't allow Christ to work in our lives, we are the greatest hoax. Because the world can't say, they can't be Christians. Because look at how they cut each other down, arguing on the internet. Different communion service, what do you think? Because God is speaking to me. I'm not telling this to you alone. I'm telling this to myself. I made the mistake of putting a picture of gas prices on the Facebook. I just thought I was... Doing people a favor, just show them how much the gas costs in California. Man, somebody went into this political firestorm hissy fit, tried to kill me. I just said, chill, it's just about gas prices. And they're still on Facebook arguing, and I ain't going back on there. (laughs) Everything today somehow falls into the political hole. And I wish that men were that passionate about Jesus. I wish folk were on the internet arguing about the love of Christ. You know how much Jesus loves me? You know how much he loves you? I wish people would be on there. You start a firestorm. When you put religious stuff on there, you get like three hits. Because the devil is so cancerified people's minds, they want to argue over stuff that don't mean diddly. That's the New York word, diddly. Diddly. Don't mean nothing. Don't mean anything. That was the first thing that Jesus wanted. Then the second thing Jesus said, in order to know me, then something happens. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you know me, then my word is going to be in you. It's going to be sanctifying you. This beautiful manual called the Bible, this manual for life, is intended not just to be our part of our devotions and our intellectual knowledge about prophetic understanding and how the 2300 days will unfold, but it is intended more than anything else to show us us and reveal to us our greatest need. Amen. Don't file the Bible down. Let the Bible file you down. And you've heard me say this. While you're reading the Bible, the Bible is reading you. And the third thing was the prayer that Jesus prayed about us being one. That was John 17, verse 20 and 21. But listen to what Ellen White says in that continued. She addressed the issue of unity so beautifully in that letter to the church in 1904 because they struggled. These early Adventists struggled. Remember, they, they, were, they were Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans and Episcopalians. They were all these different religions. They still brought their isms into Adventism. They were trying to figure out how to get this to work. 
And this is what she said to that fledgling group that was struggling with unity. She says, let us strive for peace and unity. We need to study carefully and prayerfully the prayer of Christ for his disciples. Their unity in Christ through the belief of the truth carries to the world a convincing testimony that they are taught by him. She's in essence saying, when the world sees what the truth has done in your life, they know, wait a minute, they're being taught by Jesus. Amen. They've been with him. Under the Holy Spirit's influence, peace and harmony will prevail. Spiritual peace and harmony will bring health to the church, even as physical health is promoted by the harmonious actions of all the parts of the body. So when we all are working together, what happens? We're healthy. Unity. And that's what communion is all about, Bob. Amen. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. You know the story. When Jesus approached Peter right before the Last Supper and he knelt before him to wash his feet, and Peter protested in John 13, verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. What are you doing? What are you doing? Don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. And it dawned on me, Brian, that communion is not just eating unleavened bread and unfermented wine, but communion is a declaration that we, are, we have a part with Jesus. We are partaking of the divine nature. Amen. What does this bread and this wine symbolize? A divine nature. We say, let us part, we say, let us partake together. You know what we're saying? Let us partake of the divine nature. Amen. Now, we know that alcoholics are alcoholics because the alcohol alters their whatever, the way they behave. We don't take that because we don't want to alter the way, we don't want to behave like them. But here's an epiphany. Wouldn't it be nice if by partaking of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, it will alter the way we behave? Amen. I mean, it should. There's power in the blood. We just saying that. This power in the blood. Is there power in the body of Christ? There's power there. It should alter the way we behave. Come on. Stay with me now. Because the devil's here waving those fans trying to make you guys comfortable. We get some wooden pews, it might help a little better. <laughs> so to have a part with me is big. To have a part with me is huge. So how do you know Bob? Man, I, I can tell you a lot of things about Bob nobody knows. Okay, well, you know Bob. See, to have a part with me means I'm partaking of something. And listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And the Lord hit me with that on my head, right, honey? Amen. He said to me, you thought I meant preach the Lord's death till he comes. No, I said proclaim the, Lord death, the, Lord, the Lord's death. But I've been preaching the Lord's death. No, he said, I don't, I don't want you to preach it. I want you to proclaim it. Praise God. And I, and I went into the dictionary, Terry, and looked up the word proclaim, and it's kind of like this back in the day. Hear ye, hear ye. I make a proclamation that of, as of this date, I declare from this day on, I belong to the Lord. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. But what is Paul saying? So the question is, how do we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes? Open your Bibles if you have it. Romans 6 and verse 4. Let me give your hands something to do. Romans 6 and verse 4. Listen to what the Lord says. 
And this is preparatory for the communion service. We're not going to make this thing long. This is the sermon for the communion service. Listen to what Paul says. How do we proclaim? What's the difference between preaching and proclaiming? Here's what Paul the Apostle says, Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in what? The newness of life. How do you proclaim the Lord's death? People say, what happened to Bob? What happened to Don? What happened to, to, to Tracy? What happened to them? That's not the same person that I used to know. Say it again, Bob. Jesus happened. Jesus happened. Amen. Jesus ha- he had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus happened. Wouldn't it be nice for people to say, boy, that's just not the same person. So communion is a reminder to the world, a declaration to the world that we are no longer how we used to be. We are different because through Jesus Christ, his broken body and his shed blood, we can now be raised from the dead. Amen. That old life put to death by the glory of the Father and we can now walk in the newness of life. That's all the Lord is waiting for. He's waiting for there to be a newness of life for us. He's waiting for this life to be new for us. That's why Galatians 2.20, going right back, right back to this, right back to the broken body and shed blood. Galatians 2.20, the Bible says, I have been crucified with Christ. Have you really? If you have, say amen. Amen. Well, now the next part is kind of scary. If you have been crucified, look at this. It is no longer I who live. Amen. Praise God. But Christ lives in me. Really? How do I know? In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you been crucified or are you just saying you have? And then I found this quote before I ended up here. I found this quote in Adventist Home 319. Where there is a lack of home religion, a profession of faith is valueless. Many are deceiving themselves by thinking that the character will be transformed at the coming of Christ. But there will be no conversion of heart at his appearing. Our defects of character must be repented of. And through the grace of Christ, we must overcome them while probation shall last. This is the place for fitting up for the family above. God's saying, you going to do it now, Tracy? Do it now. Some people, they ah, I can't wait to see them in the resurrection. If they went down wicked, they're coming up wicked. If they went down with an attitude, they're coming up with an attitude. That's why when I was flying over the Pacific Ocean in that 747, and they were watching that terrible, horrible movie with George Burns acting like he's God with a cigar in his mouth, I remember Helen White said, the, the last thing you did <laughs> before you died is the first thing you're going to remember in the resurrection. I said, if I'm going to die on this plane, I'm going to die reading the book of Hebrews. Wouldn't it be nice to come forth in the resurrection and say, where's my Bible? 
I'm going to continue reading the book of Hebrews. And here's what she says. As I say to you, the prayer of Jesus will not be answered by the Father or the Son, but it will be answered by us. Testimonies for the Church, volume 7, page 156. Christ's prayer for his disciples was that they may be one. All true laborers for God will work in harmony with this prayer, will work in harmony with this prayer. In their efforts to advance the work, all will manifest that oneness of sentiment and practice which reveals that they are God's witnesses, that they love one another. To a world that is broken, is the world broken? To a world that is broken up by discord and strife, their love and unity will testify to their connection with heaven. It is the convincing evidence of the divine character of their mission. It is the convincing evidence. So I end with this. If all I do is preach Jesus, I fail to proclaim him. And this is where that saying goes very well. The best sermon ever preached is not one that is heard, but one that is seen. Amen? Amen. Today, I want that sermon to be seen in our lives. Seen in, through our lives. Seen so the convincing evidence. So the convincing evidence that we are one in Christ could be seen through us.